This is a pre-recorded show. Good morning and welcome to True Talk. This is your host, Samar Jarrah. My co-host, Ahmed, and I have been suffering from a bad case of influenza. I think it started about uh, 10 days ago. And uh, we're still not doing very well. Uh, I want to thank you really uh, from the bottom of my heart for supporting WMNF Fund Drive and for helping Ahmed and I reach reach our goal uh, for True Talk. Really, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Um, Today, you're going to be listening to a very fascinating conversation with a person who used to live in the Tampa area, uh, a professor who used to teach at uh, USF, and then his whole world crumbled after September 11. Uh, you're going to be listening to Dr. Samuel Aryan, who is a professor at the University of South Florida and who was a legal resident of the U.S. since 1975. He was a very prominent Palestinian civil rights activist in the U.S., also, of course, a Muslim. And then uh, he was subjected to a relentless Uh, campaign by the government uh, as well as by uh, certain interest groups in the U.S. by uh, some media where he and his family were subjected uh, to a very, very long uh, trial and eventually as a plea bargain, uh, he left the USA and is residing in Turkey. The WMNF used to cover his case and we used to bring his wife Nahla to the studio and there was a documentary or a movie done on him uh, and uh, we, the Norwegian director would be coming to WMNF taking uh, 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 taping uh, interviews um, I'm not sure how many of you remember this case or were living in Tampa, but really as much as I followed it and I thought I followed the trial, listening to Dr. Samuel Aryan talking about intricate details related to it is mind boggling. And this is exactly what happened to me while I was sick and still sick. But I was listening to some things online. And this is a conversation that Dr. Samuel Aryan had with a number of uh, people and professors who deal with uh, our legal system. So I decided today, uh, maybe you can listen to parts of this conversation where Dr. Samuel Aryan talk about his case, talk about details that are truly, truly fascinating, uh, not even in a nice sense, but in a mind-boggling sense. Thank you again for uh, tuning in and thank you, Patty, for putting this show together. Thank you, Frank, for playing this segment. If you have any questions, please send them to dj at wmnf.org. And again, <coughs> excuse me, this is a taped uh, show. Thank you. And so his arrest also was a message, a very uh, vile one, if you ask me, because um, for a a government of 
you know, and maybe this is why it happened, but for a powerful superpower like America to um, make a, 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 an example or try to make an example out of a Palestinian intellectual living in the States, um, curtail his freedom of speech, also sent a signal internationally about where the Palestinian cause ranked and who the American government was listening to when it came to Palestinian freedom and rights. So um, I want to start by doing a kind of dissection of the arrest. Um, I, want to, I want to start by kind of laying out the anatomy of that arrest. Uh, so I'll invite Dr. Sammy first, and then obviously this is a conversation. So uh, every um, the panelists, um, I, I, I want you to interject and um, discuss with Dr. Sammy any questions that you have or comments that you would like to add. Uh, please don't wait for me to call on you or invite you in. This is a, supposed to be a kind of intimate conversation for us to all reflect on the importance of his arrest. So first, let me begin by uh, asking Dr. Sammy to kind of give us your preliminary explanation for what may have been the extraordinary um, motivations that led to you being targeted in this kind of um, what seemed to be a very um, baseless uh, case against you. So if you could give us your reflections on that, the immediate kind of context of the arrest and what you think was the uh, real uh, agenda behind the arrest and how it happened, then, you know, all the part, all the participants, you know, please let's have an, uh, you know, you can jump in and, and, and have a um, uh, kind of a natural conversation, as my dad used to say, a fireside chat with uh, Dr. Sammy. But thank you, Oase, for your for putting this together, actually, and for your kind words. <coughs> Is this not muted? Sorry. And also, I want to thank Nora, Ramzi, and Asim, really, for their heartfelt uh, words, as well as their kind, kindness, friendship, love, and, and support throughout the years. Not just for me, but also for my family and for the for the causes we all stand for. I really want to thank you, also for being here today or tonight, wherever you are, and also for engaging in this, I think, important conversation <coughs> to uh, to answer a waste question. It's very difficult, of course, to answer it in few words, but suffice it to say that. Uh, this case would not have happened except, of course, for the atmosphere of 9-11, what happened in that context where anything that society or, or law or the courts or judges or <coughs> decent American uh, the government function would stand for. Because after 9-11, basically, they th threw out the book and uh, uh, anything, really, almost anything could, could go without much accountability. But the case really didn't start on February 20th, 2003, which is two days ago, would have been 20 years ago. That's the day of my arrest. And I will talk a little bit about it. The case started at least a decade before. And of course, I could see it, I could feel it, <coughs> that uh, the Zionist 
organizations who were pretty uh, uh, unhappy, to say the least, with the activism we had throughout the United States, whether on campuses or different uh, uh, conferences or <coughs> um, organizations, organi and uh, as well as uh, the uh, the support, particularly after the Oslo Accords, of of the point of view that this was not a fair way of dealing with the Palestinian issue. So starting almost in 1994, there was a media campaign. That media campaign uh, rose to its zenith, uh, possibly by 95, 96. I was suspended, actually, from being a professor pending an investigation, which was conducted by one of the most prominent lawyers America has ever had who was the president of the American Bar Association, he was the president of the International Bar Association, he was university president, he was uh, one of the most prominent people also in the Tampa community, and he conducted an investigation and came to see that everything that we were doing within the university well, not only was, 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 was legal, but it was the right thing to do. It was academic in nature, it was beneficial to the community, and it was basically uh, a statement uh, of, of what we were doing, which was highly regarded. At any rate, uh, that campaign never really stopped. It took about two, three years. I came back to the university, and then we had a change of university presidents uh, in which the, the, the succeeding, the, the next president, or the, the president at the time, uh, was vulnerable to... Uh, basically pressure from these Zionist organizations. I'm not making this up. This is what they said after my arrest, that they were talking to her all the time, trying to tell her that I need to be dismissed, that I need to be fired. She said she had no basis, but she was also uh, very sympathetic. Uh, she had her own charity in Palestine, uh, uh, Israeli charity in Palestine. But after 9-11, it was much easier at the time to uh, make that pressure uh, succeed. And indeed, uh, one day I appeared before a national audience on Fox News. Of course, it was a setup. Uh, but, it, you know, people have to understand that we were, as uh, the American Muslim community, really under siege. So we were appearing everywhere, trying to uh, let people know how we felt about the tragic events of 9-11. And I was led to believe that certain questions would be asked, and of course, there wasn't. But that incident on Fox News was uh, characterized as being a threat to the university, <coughs> not because of anything I said, just because of what the, the, uh, the person was. And then we had the situation uh, where I was suspended for my own safety, and three months later, I was told that I would be fired uh, or dismissed from my position. And then you could see the, the tradition that the U.S. had in terms of defending the rights of free speech, in terms of uh, defending academic freedom. Uh, most unions in the United States, most uh, papers in their editorial and in their reporting, came to my side, and then a very fine and professional organization called American uh, Association of University Professors came to my side and told the university, unless I come back from that suspension, and that they um, 
stop this process of trying to dismiss me, they would be put on a blacklist or censured. And then the university herself, the president herself, went to the, uh, to, to the U.S. attorney and to senators and to the administration seeking help, you know, help me, do something. You know, for the first time I see where you have grand jury, uh, grand jury supposed to meet in secrecy, where actually the U.S. attorney uh, announces the impaneling of grand jury. And yet nothing happened for several months. And in the meantime, the AAUP, that association conducts its own investigation, tells the university, unless I'm back by August, that they will be censured. I get a call right the day before they were supposed to be censured. If I don't come back, uh, they contacted, the university contacted my lawyer, offered uh, to pay a million dollars if I would resign. I asked that that be given in writing, and then I would consider it. But then the university president went to the board chairman, who himself was an appointed by the governor of the state at the time, who was the brother of the president, Jeb Bush and George W. Bush. And he said, I'm not going to give this person any money. I've been calling him a terrorist for a year. Now you're telling me give him a million dollars. That's over my dead body. So he went to the governor and he asked for time. So the next day, instead of giving me an offer, they sued me in court. Uh, they lost by October, so <clears throat> that was just a delaying tactic, so the AAUP would not take any position since this is now in the courts. And of course, they knew they were going to lose, so they lost in state court in October. Then they lost again uh, when they went to federal court in December. And of course, in the meantime, what happened is that the governor went to the White House, who started uh, actually at that time, and I could see that later on during my trial, that most of the meetings of that grand jury, usually grand juries meet maybe once or twice a month. Uh, this was happening much, much more frequently. Uh, once after that, they, they, they hastened this. And by, by February, I was indicted, of course, and arrested. And it was, I was expecting something to happen, but not on that scale where the, the charges, obviously, they, they, they had to construct a conspiracy. So they had three other innocent people basically wrapped up into this and added to the case where their families, their lives were also disrupted. And uh, out of the four, there were over 100 charges. For me personally, they were asking for three life sentences plus 220 years. It was one of the... I think thickest indictments that attorneys have ever seen, because I'm told some indictments maybe 10 pages, 20 pages, 30 pages. Mine was 160 pages, page after page, where what it is really is a bunch of conversation between people trying to turn it into a conspiracy. Now, the evidence, uh, you know, once you're arrested. It was done in a way so that you would be totally overwhelmed. So you can't actually defend yourself. But what's funny is that I did not wait on my speedy trial. And the government asked that they were not ready. I said, if you're not ready, why do you indict? So I had to wait 27 months in solitary confinement, waiting for the government to be, to, 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 to be ready. Uh, they had 471,000 phone calls and faxes, which translated into 21,000 hours. And of course, we really didn't have access, even though they had to give it to us many months later. But 
if you are in solitary confinement, how can you even listen to it? I was only allowed to listen about <coughs> maybe 10, 12 hours a week. I said, at that rate, I need a century to finish this. But in any way, I mean, they used at the end 400 phone calls. Uh, they, in the trial, which took place in June of 2005, uh, it was, I think so, until now, maybe the longest trial ever held on U.S. soil. Uh, continuously, six months, from start to finish, June 6th to, to December 6th, and it had 80 witnesses uh, submitted by the government. 21 came from Israel, and we submitted no, I mean, we, we offered no witnesses at all because my lawyer said that the government did not prove its case and that the burden is on them. I remember on the day of the of the opening statement. Uh, the government came twice to my house. They took everything in the name, in the, in, the, in the words of the FBI agent, anything that could be moved was moved, whether it was my office at the university or the research center that we established or my home. Anything that was in Arabic, even my, my marriage certificate, <clears throat> I didn't see for 20 plus years because they took it. My, the, the, the birthday, uh, cards of my children were taken. Uh, I remember something in 95 with the first time when they came, they had me sign these page after page of things they confiscated. On one of them, it said terrorist writings. So it came to me, I said, what do you mean? What, do you, what are you talking about? It said these. It was a collection of poems that I wrote in 72, 73 when I was 14, 15 about Palestine. So their translator, you know, they said, what is this? They said, this is terrorist writings. So that's how they characterized my poetry at the time. At any rate, so during the opening statement, my lawyer had two blown up pictures. On one of them, and these two pictures came from the FBI. The FBI takes pictures before they take anything. And during the two raids, they took many books. And some of these titles of the books, they would bring the title of the book as evidence against me in court. In one instance, there was this book that was written many years back, but it had the word jihad in it, you know, centuries ago. <laughs> so they took that and they presented the, the, to the jury simply the name of the book, that I was reading such, such a book. But also I had a gun that somebody gave me. Um, I never used it, but I had it. So twice they came to my house, and they twice they left the gun and took the books. So the lawyer had these two blown up pictures. On one hand, he has all the books, and on the other, he has a gun. And he said, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this is what the case is about. The government came twice to my client's house. This is what they took, which was the books, and this is what they left which was the gun. They never confiscated the gun, even though it's supposed to be, uh, supposed to be dangerous. I want to interject because there's a lot of points of clarification that for the international audience. Uh, so, because there's a lot of, uh, I mean, you're, this is rich, rich narrative of your um, experience. Uh, number one, I wanted to ask you, before we jump into the details of the trial, um, the events leading up to this, as you pinpoint, is this um, issue of freedom of speech on college campus that you were 
you know, the, the campus seemed to have had a problem with what you were advocating on campus. And, um, you know, America, especially America on the issue of civil, on the freedom of speech, there's a lot of um, organizations that are there to protect uh, intellectuals, writers, authors, uh, precisely on these grounds. <coughs> And what was your experience with those organizations? I know you pointed to the uh, uh, University Professors uh, Association. What about the other ones? I mean, there's really high-profile organizations. How did they respond to this uh, freedom of speech issue that you faced on campus? Well, in America, you have problems, of course, between administration, administ university administrators, and uh, faculty. I remember in 1996, I was invited to a conference, along with many others, uh, on the Middle East at uh, Villanova University. This is 1996 now. This is seven years before the arrest. And because my name was in the program, uh, many Zionist organizations protested, and they put a lot of pressure on the university. So the university uh, told the, the, the organizers of the conference that for my lecture it has to be moved off campus while the whole others would be on campus. How does that pressure look like? What, what, well, what I mean, what, well, it, it still happen? happens. I mean, you have donors, alumni, who would come and, and say, if, if this person is allowed in, we will stop our donations. That's one way. Another way would be somebody within the administration who has connections. I remember my first, when I was arrested, there was a lawyer that I had and he said, this case is too big for him. He said, what are you going to do about it? He said, I need to get the biggest Jewish lawyer in town. I said, why? He said, you know, he, he can help with that. I said, okay, <laughs> do whatever you think <laughs> needs to be done. So he hired that person. Uh, and that person was told by his rabbi that if he ever takes the case, he will be excommunicated. So that's another way of... Of course, many, many others don't care about that, but I'm just giving you well, how does that, it, press, it happens in so many ways, by money, by pressure, by social pressure, by the media. You know, the media could come and jump and, and do uh, many reports and, and they can do so much damage to university. University doesn't want headache. I can give also, you know, tribute to uh, uh, some of the university administrators who stood up. The university senate stood up for me. The, uh, the uh, university... Um, uh, union uh, stood up for me within the university, within my university, within Florida, and nationally also. They all had statements that stood uh, uh, with me at the time while the university was trying to fire me. And even after my arrest, you know, I could see that people would say, we're not going to comment about innocence or guilt, but he is not getting his due process rights, and that's not right. I can say stories after stories how that was denied. I told you about my speedy trial. I never waived it yet, yet the, the judge waived it because the government said they're not ready and they wanted me to prepare while in solitary confinement while they're trying to prepare. You know, I told you about the 21 uh, witnesses from Israel. I remember at one point in the indictment, they had a conspiracy. That conspiracy needed what's called overacts. And it's enough to mention one crime. In my case, they mentioned nine. Usually, this is used against the mafia. So it could be gambling, prostitution, money laundering, killing, all kinds of crimes. In my case, they had different ones, including maiming, 
killing and extortion. One of them was extortion. And I remember Edward Said's son was on the defense team and he had a little motion saying, who did they extort? So when the judge asked the government, who did they extort? Their answer was, they tried to extort land from the state of Israel. And even that judge who was not very sympathetic to us at all. He said, you can't extort a state. You're going to extort a person. So he took it out. Then, like 10, 12 months later, they, they uh, superseded and they brought it back. Even they didn't need it. I mean, although they needed is one crime, they had nine already. He took one, there were eight, but they put it back and he said, okay, who did they extort? He said, we're going to bring someone. I was very uh, ang actually, I was very anxious to know who did I extort exactly. And during the trial, they brought a woman from Israel. Now, uh, she was in Costa Rica at the time, but she was originally Israeli. And she testified to the following. She was one of the witnesses. She said that in 1996, she lost her sister to a suicide bomber. And four years later, uh, she felt so afraid from that experience that she had to sell her restaurant in Tel Aviv and move to Costa Rica with her husband and two children. And that's how I extorted her. This was to the extent. That's the evidence against uh, me extorting this lady that I never met in my life. And of course, I can tell so many stories. I mean, one of the evidence, if I may say, was a dream that one of my co-defendants had. That dream was given to the jury as evidence against me. And he, that, in that dream, he dreamt of me talking to him about Palestine. And it just happened that he recited that dream to another person in Chicago. Both of them were being <coughs> monitored and bugged from both ends. So that dream was captured by FBI monitoring. And whatever I told him in his dream was read to the jury as evidence against me. And I was telling my lawyer, it's not even my dream. <laughs> I mean, why am I being held to that dream? But that kind of evidence that was given to the jury day after day, month after month, with many words in Arabic twisted to, be, to, to mean something that wasn't meant. They brought an FBI agent for about a month, and he would start giving all kinds of explanations about these words and about these connections and about these associations. And yet, when it was our turn to question him, he was no longer an expert. He's not an, an Arabic language expert. Then why did he give that explanation to that? I mean, it was very strange. Um, I mean, when you go through the trial, now we can probably laugh about it. At the time, it wasn't laughable. Because when you're facing that kind of um, destiny, you know, that kind of fate, that kind of possibilities, obviously, it's serious. And all that is happening while you are incarcerated. In my case, even worse. I was in the women prison um, so that I wouldn't even communicate any man. So to be in a women prison, you are in a cell in, uh, inside four cell compartment that are all empty inside the whole wing, which is 16 cells that are empty. And all the guards are women. And that added psychological problem uh, that, com com you know, that even compounds it. And there was no reason actually for that to take place except just to put you into that humiliating situation. If you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM. You're listening to a conversation with Dr. Samuel Aryan, who used to live in the Tampa Bay area. The government spent more than $200 million to try and indict him on terrorism charges and failed. He is talking about the saga that he had to go through, he and his family. Okay, so 
I want to I want to ask another question. Uh, you said that you know you were subject to a grand jury. So for international people who might not be familiar with what the significance of that is. What is the significance of a grand jury? Maybe, Asim, you can also jump in here. Well, the American justice system, very simply, this is in the Constitution, you, you can't, the government can't just come and indict someone or charge someone with a criminal offense unless a group of people, of his peers, usually 23 people, would hear evidence, but it's one-sided evidence from the government. So the government comes and gives them all kinds of evidence why this person should be charged. And if 12 of them say, okay, uh, he's probably guilty, then you're charged, and then another process takes place. So the government was talking, as I said, for months uh, to these 23 individuals. But when you read it, I mean, the kind of lies that were told to these people was unbelievable. But it has to do also because they don't know anything about the Middle East. They have no idea. And I remember, you know, he was one of the, <coughs> the FBI agent was telling them about a group I'm supposedly associated with, that that group was smuggling by land arms from Iran to Syria. My God, I mean, there is a whole, I mean, that's my lawyer, my lawyer was telling him, did you say that? He said, yes. He said, didn't you know that there is a whole chunk of territory between both called Iraq and that Iraq is bad, they had bad policy with both of them. How could they smuggle? I mean, just he kept lying and lying and lying. And of course, at the end of the day, as the saying says, you can indict a ham sandwich. If, you know, you can make a case against a ham sandwich and get it indicted. So that wasn't difficult, especially it's, since it's a political case. I mean, there is one lesson to be learned about this, is that if the government targets someone on political grounds, it's political persecution, uh, the odds are in their favor. So in that sense, the fact that I got out of this is a miracle. I mean, it's, it's nothing short of an absolute miracle. I you can't, ask you, you, about can't, you can't argue otherwise. About that issue of it being a political targeting. So uh, because one, as I was, you know, I was, I was young when you were going through your, uh, the, the trial. And one of the things that, how it impacted me was that um, as a Muslim who wanted to be political and to uh, exert my uh, political ideas and values, um, to see you get targeted right, was uh, sent me in a state of skepticism because already, as you come from an immigrant background, there, you know, immigrant immigrants are come from a background, especially from my background who don't want to uh, get targeted. I mean, you, you're, you're in, you're, you know, your family's in a mode of trying to establish themselves, grow new roots. The last thing that you want to get entangled in is with a political issue. So compounded with that kind of, um, what you might call like, you know, apoliticism, you know, that certain immigrant families have in the United States, uh, seeing you get targeted, you know, uh, reinforces this kind of attitude that a political Muslim, a Muslim who wants to do political activism or fight for justice or their values, that this is something that maybe you shouldn't be doing. Mm. So uh, can you please talk about why you were such a, a political problem, you particularly uh, for the United States government? You can never know exactly why. 
but you can sense, of course, you're being targeted. Of course, most of the evidence or most of the targeting that the, that the uh, government use, it's about associations with certain people they don't like. But interestingly enough, all these associations were at least a decade before. 94 was the last thing that they could point to. But why were you targeted? I think I was a very uh, interesting person to them because I was very not only active on the front of, of Palestine, where you elicited many, many enemies, you know, particularly Zionists and, and powerful lobbies and, and powerful groups, both locally and nationally. But also, I was very active on the front, on the political front. You know, between 2000, sorry, between 1997 and 2002, uh, I was probably a leading figure in the fight against secret evidence, and we were winning. And then I played. Uh, major role in the elections, 2000 elections. So I got very close to many political figures in the US establishment, you know, people who were in the legislative side in Congress, very powerful people in Congress. And they were monitoring all this, by the way. I found out that they were basically after, you know, they knew everything. I mean, the government, it's not like, by the way, this thing about this narrative that they tried to advance, that if it wasn't for the Patriot Act, they could never have uh, uh, charged me is is absolute lie. I saw the exact indictment was drawn up in. I can give you even the date. It was August 2000. This is at least two years before the Patriot Act passed. The exact word for word, even the overacts, but the overacts in that indictment is stopped in August 2000, while the overact in, uh, in my actual indictment stopped in uh, January of 2003. So it was the exact one. So this whole thing is absolute bogus, absolute lie. But at the time, the, the attorney general at the time, they wouldn't go for it, which was Janet Reno, to her credit, because she said, this is, this is nonsense. This is not a, there, are, there are no crimes except, you know, trying to, to, uh, to uh, make up something that is not criminal to, to make it sound like a criminal. And I think that's what the jury saw at the end. The government made so many arguments, gave so many evidence, as they called them, and they couldn't convince the jury of, of any of the, of the charges. Not one charge. Not one charge that the jury buy, uh, bought from the government. At any rate, so if you combine the fact, number one, you're very active in Palestine. Many powerful groups are against you. Two, you're becoming very close to the centers of power and getting closer. I remember during the inauguration of uh, George W. Bush, I had very powerful Republicans meeting with me, thanking me and the efforts and this and that, and they wanted to deepen that relationship. Uh, I wasn't oblivious to the many issues. I was focused on secret evidence and legal issues. And then... You add to that also your your impact on the larger Muslim community. You know, I uh, uh, at the time uh, I was really friends with everybody. I didn't take sides. I was trying to get everybody united. On the month that I was arrested, uh, two major organizations were supposed to even unite, and I was the one who bringing them together. 
and, and so on and so forth. And you became an easy target. So once I was identified as a target, once all the stars aligned with them, and then let's not forget also that the person who was in charge of the criminal division, Chertoff, uh, he was also part of this big time, and he was uh, pressured by the Israelis. We saw this in WikiLeaks. When it came, the role of the Israelis and the U.S. Embassy in, in Tel Aviv and how they were communicating with the Justice Department. During my trial, the chief investigator, the FBI agent, said that he'd been to Israel with the prosecutors sometimes 21 times. Uh, we're doing what? <laughs> you know, in Israel 21 times. I had nothing to do, I've never been there. But, I mean, there you go. So it was many issues, but they came all together and add to that the public pressure when you are university president. So if I wasn't university professor, probably would not have been. There was no 9-11, probably would not have been. If there was no focus, and, and, and remember also the, the media campaign. That media campaign started in November 94. I remember there was one um, newspaper that was really targeting me big time between November 94 and February 2003. I was in 1,536 articles. I mean, you're talking about <laughs> major, major. In one month, I remember, in November 95, I was there almost daily. Even, you know, in November, usually you have Thanksgiving. There's nothing on Thanksgiving. So, I usually I'll be on page one. So on Thanksgiving Day, it was the section B, things you should be thankful for. Number one, that you're not Samuel Arya. And then they start repeating whatever you want to repeat. I remember also on the Oklahoma City bombing, that was 95. That was, if you remember, that event came on April 20th, 1995. No, April 18th. So anyway, so a couple of days later, they have already identified two white Americans, they called them crew cut. And they had, uh, 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 they had some, <coughs> I think, like uh, sketches of how they looked like. You know, Terry Mc uh, Nichols and and Timothy McVeigh. That was page one. On page four, there was a full article pointing that I was responsible for the Oklahoma City bombing, with full graphs and full justification and how I brought Hassan Turabi to America. He's a terrorist. I was trying to bring Rashid Ghanoushi, he's a terrorist. I was friends for, with this and friends with that. And then during my, uh, my uh, discovery, I went to that day and tried to listen. Turned out that they were not only listening, live. They were listening live to me on 9-11, on, sorry, on the Oklahoma City bombing. And then somebody was summarizing the call and the end said, I don't think he has anything to do with it. That's how much this thing was going that's how the, the illusion, I mean, the think, the thinking that somehow I had something to do with 9-11 and they would have someone actually, I mean, not 9-11, sorry. I mean, even they said 9-11, somebody else, but in Oklahoma City. And, and, and uh, if I can tell you story after story about very strange things, but there you are. I mean, when you're targeted, you're targeted. And it becomes easy to not only target you, but try to frame you so that they can have... You know, I was told that this case cost the American taxpayers $200 million. Now, you have to show something for that. When you spend that kind of money, when you had 12 people translating, 12 people translating, 
some of them for six and seven years, when one of them was asked on the stand how much he made last year, while he was, that's one person, was $93,000, you multiply by six and then multiply by 12, these are only the translators, for God's sake. So you could see that's 10. And once you go that route, it's very difficult to say, oh, it's okay. <laughs> you try to show otherwise. If, if I may interject just very quickly, uh, uh, and before I ask my question, I think it's just it's really interesting how surreal this whole thing is. I mean, we live in this illusion that we, you know, no matter what happens, you know, the United States at the end of the day is, is, is a country of law and order and, and, and all of that. But if we just kind of, you know, um, get off our high horses just for a minute, and to just to apply these details, these harrowing details, this kind of mockery that took place for all these years, and to actually think that this must have been duplicated in, in, in many other scenarios concerning Muslims and Palestinians and non-Muslims and Palestinians. If this took place, say, in North Korea, for example, or anywhere else in the world, especially in countries that are not on the, you know, the good list of... Uh, American allies and friends, I mean, we would, it, it would be, you know, a New York Times editorial, just emphasizing how incredibly unjust these countries are. And to think that this is actually happening in this very country, uh, and it happens quite often, and yet somehow we still get away with this brand that we are somehow special and unique, and we are the best of the best. So that kind of leads me to my question, and in a way, it's also a build, uh, building on a question asked by um, Awais earlier. Uh, number one, I think, Dr. Sami, I mean, by, by, by now, you are an expert in the justice system in America. I mean, how, how much do you think this is part and parcel of a larger ailment in our justice system? Or is this unique to a certain group of people? call them Muslims or Palestinians or whomever. And, and the other question uh, is that how much do you think of this um, had to do with Samuel Arian as a person, as an activist, uh, as an, an academic, as an advocate for justice, and as a mobilizer of, of, of our communities here? And how much do you think it has something to do with other elements that might not be unique to Dr. Samilarian as a person. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> during my later years, in, I was about five and a half years in prison, and about five and a half years under house arrest in my second in my second trial. So, in the first trial, the first about from February two thousand three until about. September 2006, I was almost in solitary. Then I was sent to, uh, to another prison. I've been to 14 prisons, by the way. So this one, I was a uh, county prison. So there were many others in the, in, the, in, the, in the pod. They call it pod. About 22 prisoners, mostly African-Americans and Latin-Americans, but mostly African-Americans. And I saw so many injustices there. And uh, I, I can tell you stories, really horror stories about these people and how they are mistreated and justice does not serve them. They don't see a lawyer except on the day he's appointed. 
and the day he would plead guilty, most of them wouldn't go to trial even if they are innocent because they are told they have no chance. Some of them have eighth grade education, they can't even read well. So I had to read to them and tell them you're facing, there is no limit. And he said, no, my lawyer told me I can get a maximum eight years. I said, this is not there, it's not. Then when they go and they are shocked to get 15, 20, 25 years, even though they were told that they would only get five or eight, even though they were just, some of them were just in the wrong place at the wrong time because they didn't have a home and they were, their house that they were in was raided and they were taken with the others as gangs or, or drug dealers or what have you. Uh, an absolute horror stories you hear from these people. You talk about their poverty and how they really had no chance and they tried to make something out of their lives and yet, they don't and they end up in prison because no one really cares. This whole justice system is a mockery. No one is defending them. They keep calling the lawyers. They never return their, their calls and then they come to them a day or two before trial. Either If you don't plead, you're going to get this amount. And even <laughs> they don't understand it. Even when they plead, they don't get what they promised. So this, these are just some examples to say. Uh, uh, and even within the, the system, it may look nice and clean and everything, but Discrimination, racism, uh, is, is 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 white is white there. You know, I I um, I was mistreated and and because I had a lot of support from the outside, the Justice Department had to investigate one incident in which I was abused by prison guards. And at the end, I had to take a lie detector test, and they had to take one. I passed. They failed. I don't know what they happened to them, but that's. They told me, the Justice Department told me that usually they would investigate one case out of 10,000. Just imagine how many people they get abused and no one hears about it and no one investigates, just to say the least. But is it unique to me? <clears throat> I mean, my obviously my, my persecution, prosecution was unique to me, but it happens. It happens a lot. My case was very unique because it has lots of politics as part of it. I was an easy target and, and also an alluring target because if they win that case, it could really set an example to many people about activism, about speaking out, and, and, and setting a certain narrative that certain people wanted to, to use. Uh, so the defeat to them was, was also huge because they rarely get defeated in these cases. Actually, we had hundreds and hundreds of cases we probably had only three or four wins, and two of them uh, were for me. So uh, I, I say that there, there are a lot of books on, on, on racism, a lot of books on injustices. David Cole had one, No Equal Justice, in which he explains how Africa, we have two systems of justices in America, one for the rich and powerful and one for the poor. But even among the poor, you also have two systems because juries, you know, you try, you know, and I was extremely fortunate to have good jury. I mean, this doesn't happen often. And there are reasons why it happened with me. And I can say also some of it is, is really miracles. I mean, in my case, usually you get about 50 people uh, to get 12 or 16 if you have uh, alternates. In my case, they started with 500. And they dwindled, dwindled, and then uh, some of them were exposed during the trial. And that's what I'm saying, it's a miracle, because usually you don't get exposed. And one of them was extremely prejudiced, but he was exposed during the trial, and he was taken out. So 
Um, the, the answer to the question, the short answer is that uh, justice in America is not blind and justice in America is not cheap. Dr. Sammy, I wanted to also ask you um, about, you know, how you see if, if anything has changed in the last 20 years in terms of political persecutions, especially of Palestinians, um, but also in the realm of uh, intellectuals and, and activists. Um, how do you see you know, the, the, the ongoing collusion between the Israeli government, uh, Israel lobby groups, um, and lawmakers, uh, people who, who want to score political points by, um, you know, waging these, these wars of persecution against Arabs and, and especially Palestinians in the U.S. What do you think has changed and, and how, um, what kind of advice do you give to, um, you know, college professors today who, who are facing, um, you know, of course, not the like huge, <laughs> absurd case uh, and, and persecution that, that you were subjected to, but um, these kind of uh, you know, very relentless attacks and, and you know, smear campaigns, nonetheless. I think the, the record is mixed, but I think mostly positive. But if we start talking about the government and it's, it's, uh, it's poli and the politics going on and the support that never, of course, uh, when we talk about the actual policies of the U.S. towards Israel-Palestine, you could tell, you know, that this really never changed very much uh, throughout American history. Uh, and I'm talking from... Nixon to Obama, every single president had to veto once or more, you know, any resolution against Israel. Israel has been uh, protected by U.S. successive governments, Republican and Democrat. They have been given all the tools, all the, 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 the protection, uh, uh, diplomatically, uh, militarily, politically, economically. Uh, Israel gets what it wants. Not only because there are there is a powerful lobby group, but also there are American uh, security uh, establishment interests, this hegemonic uh, industrial complex that wants to preserve American imperial policies throughout the world, this hegemonic policies that America must stay as the unit powerful country in the world, which means that they need to establish certain relationships in different regions to keep their interest in check. These things were, were married together, uh, at least since Kissinger Nixon, if not before, in order to make Israel the hegemonic power in the Middle East on behalf of American interests. At least this is how they perceive it. And, of course, Israelis take advantage of, of these people, in addition, of course, to the other cultural and religious aspects of the evangelical Christians who think that somehow when Israel is established and the so-called third temp temple is built, that Jesus is going to come and take everybody to heaven with them. All these 
myths and, and, and these uh, uh, misperceptions and misrepresentations of religious beliefs are in play. So when it comes to that, nothing much has changed. Uh, in fact, you could see even during Obama when he tried to do some simple stuff he wasn't able to. Uh, he had to sign before he left the uh, package of $38 billion to Israel for the next decade. And of course, Trump came and, and even expanded on that. But when you go to college campuses, I could say that I've, I've been there. You know, I lived in the U.S. for 40 years, 75 through 2015. I've seen what how little American campuses, students knew about Israel-Palestine, how the narrative of Palestinians was completely absent from campuses. Uh, that is not the case. I've seen the, the extensive, um, the extensive uh, presence of Hillel and other Zionist groups. That has weakened tremendously today. You, you could see even Jewish students standing up for Palestinian rights even more than Arabs and Muslims sometimes. That amount of, of support has expanded tremendously. I don't see organized groups as much as I see student-led and, and human-led and, and, and people-led type of, of resistance. Uh, maybe that's a sign of the times more than anything else. Uh, I've, I've invited few people, act, student activists from U.S. campuses to our campus here in Turkey. And I was really uh, 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 pleasantly surprised to see how much they know, even though they are in their 20s, about the history of the conflict and how motivated they are to stand up for rights. And that gave me a lot of hope that the future is with this generation, not with the old one. So even though you could see uh, that there are a lot of, you know, old politics going on, but I'm very, very hopeful that we we, we are seeing different different kind of a generation. Also, you could see that there is a little bit of hope within the Democratic Party, you know, especially with those who are sometimes uh, termed as liberals, you know, the the Han Omar of the world, the Rashid Tlaib of the world, and others like them who are stand, you know, starting to speak out within the halls of Congress. Uh, it's very interesting. I had very, I, I had about three or four years really going to Congress almost weekly. I had a lot of engagement with Democrats and Republicans. I can tell you right now that many of these Republicans are literally anti-Semitic when they see me as Palestinian. You know, I had a very famous Republican. He was the chairman of the International Relations Committee he was absolutely anti-Palestinian, and he was saying all kinds of things pro-Israel. But in private, he was completely the opposite. WMNF Tampa. You know, and he, he started giving me stuff that I was...